We traditionally start off with a scripture um, before we even start anything. So I'm going to read a scripture. So um, if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 9. And we'll start, we'll start there. I want to read this scripture. I think it captures a lot of, uh, we're in a series right now called Community Mixtape, which is a kind of miscellaneous um, sermon series on community and everything that we still want to say about community and things that we, um, uh, we've learned over the last year of authentic community that we want to um, highlight. So here's a text that's kind of been leading us through our year a bit. Is that fan too cold for you? Want me to move that fan? It's freezing. Yeah. But yeah. I think you should just do your thing and let me worry about fans and phones. This is we'll hospitality. Be, I'm we'll teaching just, on hospitality. No, this is ADD, in a couple not weeks hospitality. I'm but <laughs> thank you. All right. Fantastic. Romans 12, 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for um, this time with uh, John Mark. We pray that, uh, that you would give us your words to, to speak, to, to like really practice the text here, to try and embody somewhat of this slow moving, almost grind sometimes that is Christian community. That's harder than we always expect. That's more demanding than we expect, expect, but it's also way more fulfilling and rewarding than any ephemeral thing. Um, social media, quote, friends that we have, like real authentic Christian friendship is like uh, the thing that we long for. And so I pray that as we talk about what it means to slow down in community, um, I pray that you would meet with us and um, all of us here gathered, we would learn something and walk in it, Lord. Um, we submit all of our mind and capacity and our voice and our conversation to you now. Uh, have your way in the strong, powerful name of Christ. Amen. 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 So I just, I think part of me just wants to start out by talking about how hard, I know it's kind of starting out negative, but how hard community is. Let's just talk about that I have for no a second. idea what you're talking about. Yeah, I know. It's so easy It's a you. walk in the park. Um, yeah, let's talk about how hard community is. Like, how hard is it? Why is it hard? Um, yeah, just talk about that. Um, you know, I think if you plot community inside, like, the overall matrix of spiritual formation, just meaning if you think about the role that community plays in how we become like Jesus of Nazareth, how we become people of love and joy and peace. I think what's easy to forget is that one of the main things it's supposed to do is exposure, meaning it's supposed to expose the reality of where we're actually at. There's this odd like conspiracy between God and nature that I don't have my head all the way around where, at least in my experience, we're at our worst with the people that we love the most. So if you were to like break the law and put a, you know, creepy Facebook thing on my lapel, some hidden camera or something, and follow me around for a week, all of the worst moments that you would see, the moments where you would gasp and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just said that or did this, would all be pretty much with my wife and my three kids. And it would pretty much all be things that I say. 
So you would see just moments, uh, and sometimes just moments of tiredness, or you're not at your best, and you're caught off guard, but that's actually who I am. And it's actually a beautiful thing. It's because I feel safe, because I feel that my wife, my family will not abandon me. So I, at a psychological level, I'm sure there's all sorts of neuroscience behind this that I don't fully have my head around at all. But like something, the moment I walk, there, a lot of you feel this. If you have a safe living situation with roommates or a spouse, the moment you walk through the door, there's this psychosomatic like, ha, ah, and you feel like more at peace, you also feel grouchier a lot of the time. And, that's because that's who you actually are. You've been pretending all day long, right? And so of all, we project this image to the world that is more loving than we actually are when we feel safe. And so there's this thing that happens in community. The more you move into intimacy, honesty, vulnerability, like actual, what you would call authentic community, your real self starts to come out more and more. And that's actually a gift from God because the reality of where you're actually at in your spiritual journey into love, which is the telos of the whole thing, is the end goal of the whole thing, is to become people of love as defined by Jesus, not defined by SF or Portland. You actually see where you're at, but like you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that human beings go to great lengths to avoid actually admitting where they actually are. Yeah. The psychologist M. Scott Peck defined mental health as dedication to reality at all costs. And I think it was Jung who defined all neurosis as an inability to face reality. So human beings just live in a perpetual state of denial from Genesis 3 to the present. And it's never really been easier with phones and Wi-Fi and distracting fans and Netflix and all the things that basically thank you to all of you for. Um, so it's, it's, it's never... Sorry, I'm, I'm, that's, my, that's an exposure right like there. I feel safe with you. I love you. This is one of my favorite churches. I let down my guard. The real me comes out, which is sarcastic and still in need of love. Um, so thank you for that safe place, uh, or at least it used to be a safe place. But um, it's never been easier than before, than now, I think, to avoid the reality of where we're actually at. And that's, and that's why I think a, pe a lot of people get disillusioned with community is they have this idea. Was it Bonhoeffer? Have you read? I'm sure you've read. I saw it together. I saw it this morning. I was sitting in Dave's office this morning early drinking his coffee in his wonderful mug. We have the same mug, by the way, which is just another reason I love you. And um, I saw it on your bookshelf there, Life Together by Bonhoeffer. Mm. If you've not read that, it's yeah, kind of the classic incredible. book on community. I just reread it a few months ago before some teaching we were doing back home on community. And I reread it and still the same paragraph out of the whole book jumped out to me. It's this greatest, great paragraph. I couldn't quote it to you verbatim. But he basically says, those who love the ideal of the community mm -hmm. become the destroyer of the community. Right. And maybe you could elaborate on that. And his basic idea, the more idealistic you are about community, the more you actually don't bring love, you bring destruction to a community. Because community isn't this idealistic utopian vision. It's where your real self comes out. But in Jesus kind of community or a healthy, whether that's a CG group or a healthy marriage or a great friendship or a parenting relationship or a mentor relationship or past any kind of Christian community. It should be a loving, safe place for who we actually are to come out and be exposed, which allows us to then, I think, move toward Christ-likeness. Yeah, I think that there is some, I know I, for me, I feel like sometimes my my job, even though it's a ministry and it's a beautiful job and it's like, it's, I think it's an important job. Sometimes just the, my job, and I think everyone can, might, might relate this in certain ways, disorders me 
for genuine, authentic community. Hmm. So people ask me all the time to make decisions, and I'm like, like, I'm in meetings, like, what do you think about that? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? And then I'm in a pastor meeting where I am like counseling people and all this stuff. So everyone's asking me all these questions. I'm making decisions and I'm, I'm like pastoring people. Then I get home and I, I kind of <laughs> am in this mode where I'm like, I make decisions. And you say, and Ash doesn't I come to you and be like, Ashley. what should I do here? And yeah. you say, do this. Yeah, and, and she's, she's like, just like, great done. idea. I great. didn't think about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what happens at all. And if she doesn't have a good attitude, she's fired as your wife, yeah, she's you like, know, no. done. So I walk in Doesn't and work that way. everything, like you're saying, everything changes. And I yeah. feel like I've been ordered in a certain way to show up uh, in relationships in a certain way because it's a job and it's, you know, these certain things are required of me. And it's task But relationships are completely different. Yeah. yeah. And so I walk in the room and it's, it's not transactional. It's way more relational. It's more like... It's egalitarian. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, exactly. And it's egalitarian in the sense I walk in and I don't make those. I don't mean that in like a loaded sense or even a theological sense. I just mean like you're on equal footing. Yeah, nobody's a boss there. It's relational. It's slow. It's mutual love. So I think sometimes our our lives and our jobs habituate us in certain ways that make relationships just extra hard. Yeah. Extra difficult because we're not necessarily doing that at work. Though there is relationship at work, but it's way more hierarchical. It's way more like task-based. It's way more this. And then you get into relationship. Yeah. It's way different. So um, how, talk to me a little bit about like how this how this like sets up how we're, how we relationally, how we're like our soul is formed in relationships and how that's formed in family of origin stuff and yeah. all of that stuff. And then what is required then when we show up in authentic community? Uh, you know, we both love Pete Scazzaro and most of you are familiar with Pete and Gary's work in emotionally healthy spirituality. And he defines pastoring as reparenting people into the family of God. And it's really helpful to think about kind of, you know, spiritual formation into people of love and community's role in exposure to put that inside like a family matrix, both from your family of origin to church as the family of God. Because once your stuff is exposed, then you have to figure out what to do with it, right? Then all this stuff comes out and it's not supposed to be like, oh, cool, you do you. Great. No, because now we're in relationship together. But I think a key part of what community is supposed to do, and again, you have to be really careful, you know, wary of the idealism here that can creep in. And this hopefully will not sound like that. But as the messiness of our sin or whatever you want to call it, our dysfunction comes up to the surface in relationships as as we feel safe and who we actually are comes out as we move toward vulnerability, what comes to the surface is the, the habits of relationship, the ways of being with other people, most of which we picked up either in our family of origin or somewhere along the way that um, are not based in Christ-like love and are not based in trust. And so, you know, there's this little book that we both love called The Relational Soul by two Christian psychologists. And it basically is the best kind of all-in-one-place approachable thing on attachment theory and spiritual formation. And so most of you have at least a cursory read on attachment theory. Basic idea is very simple. Your brain has an attachment system. We're hardwired. We're literally neurobiologically hardwired by God to relate to other people. So when a baby comes out of the womb, it immediately begins trying to make eye contact with mom or dad or whatever the primary 
caregivers are. And from a, from a very young age, some would argue when we're still in the womb, others would argue in those first few months, depending on, I'm, I'm not a doctor, that's outside of my field of inquiry. But we, we learn these ways of being in relationship with people. And some of them are really healthy and some of them are not healthy. And there's a whole other thing there, rabbit hole, we could go into. But those ways of being, relation, ways of being in relationship with other people, and some of you know the four attachment styles, and, and that may be helpful, it may not be helpful to put it in those categories of avoidant or anxious or secure. But we carry these ways of being in relationship with other people in our muscle memory, like literally just this is how we talk, this is how we interact with people, this is how we respond to intimacy, this is how we respond to criticism, this is how we respond to authority, this is how we respond to men, women, whatever the thing is. We carry those ways of being not only into all of our adult relationships, which most of us can pretty easily figure out, but also into our relationship with God. So like the main takeaway from that book is they have this one little line, how you relate is how you relate. Meaning, if you can spot a pattern of the way that you relate to other people, it's odds, it, the odds are very high that same pattern exists in how you relate to God. So it's an absolute fallacy, for example, and this is very tender ground, so I say this with a lot of sensitivity, but to have a massive father wound and to think that doesn't affect the way that you view the God that, God called, that Jesus called Father. Or to have abandonment by your mother and think that doesn't affect your experience of the nurturing love of the Spirit of God. So like when we say that, we're like, oh, well, of course. But often we just live in these like parallel planes of existence. And we think, well, I'm not very good with men. I'm not very good with people. I'm not very good with intimacy. I'll just stick with God. But the, the whole thing goes together. How you relate is how you relate. And this is why I think in Jesus' mind, learning to love, to, to receive and give love to God is inseparable from learning to receive and give love to other people. This is why when he's asked what's the greatest commandment in all of scripture, he answers with two commandments, not one. Little Lord of God, with all your heart, soul, strength, Deuteronomy 6. And, and that's, that's all that was asked. What's the greatest commandment? But he doesn't answer like classic Jesus or classic preacher. He, he answers a lot more than what people are asking. Um, and he just goes on and he says, and the second is like it, you know, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, you know, we all get that in Jesus' frame of reference, you can't separate out love for God from love of people. You can't separate out spiritual life from all of life, from community. And I think we often just view it as like a moral imperative, like, oh, Jesus really wants us to become loving people. True. But I think there's a deeper kind of thing underneath that, a, a subterranean soul thing, where what Jesus is realizing is that in order to heal your capacity to trust God in love, you have to also experience healing your capacity to trust other people in love. And this is where more and more, I don't know what you think of this, Dave, I'm thinking of if not the, at least a key facet of the spiritual journey is recapturing our capacity for trust that was lost in Genesis 3. And one way of reading Genesis 3 is Eve and Adam's inability to trust the love of God. Ignatius of Loyola, founder of the Jesuit order, defines sin as unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is my deepest happiness. So trust is really, if you read Genesis 3, as we do, and I think we're getting this from our dear friend Tim Mackey and others, as basically an inability to trust God's vision of good and evil, or what we would just call the good life, which is really, what is all sin? What is all the controversy around? Pick your controversial topic that you guys have talked about over the last few months, because you've talked about all of them, or whatever. Um, what is sin? It is, it is at its root an inability to trust God's vision of good and evil, 
which is deeper than that, an inability to trust that what God wants for us is our deepest happiness. And in, in order to restore and recapture our ability to trust God, this is literally at a neurobiological level rooted in our capacity to trust other people. And so as we are in relationships, we get a second chance for healing. I mean, we, we have a little saying back home, we'll just say, it's not original to us, but our, our deepest wounds, as a general rule, our deepest wounds come from relationship, as do our greatest healing. Mm -hmm. And this is why when people are deeply wounded in a relationship, which happens to almost all of us, and some of you way more than others, if they cut themselves off from relationship, be it romantic, be it a parental relationship, be it a friend relationship, be it a spiritual or pastoral relationship, pick your, if they just say, I won't do that, I don't wanna get hurt again, let me just wait, five years go by and nobody is less hurt after five years. They're actually more bitter and hardened and fearful and locked up in incapacity to trust. Because the only way we heal is moving back toward a healthy, not perfect, but healthy, similar-like relationship. Mm -hmm. So if we have a deep father wound, the way we heal from that is moving back toward authentic community with a father figure who's not perfect, that doesn't exist, but is healthy. Same with romance, same with marriage, same with siblings, same with whatever it is. So I think that's the dream, the messy ideal of Christian community of Jesus' vision of life together is that this is the place where all of our stuff comes out. That's why it's so dang hard. And we sin against each other because we feel safe with each other. And our incapacity to trust God and one another is exposed where we're actually at. And instead of running to distraction or hedonism or work or whatever our narcotic is, we face it in the safe place of Christian community and love. We move back toward relationship, imperfect, messy. We get hurt along the way, but we begin to experience healing and we recapture our ability to trust God and other people. Yeah, trust is such a huge thing in community. I, something I've been meditating on uh, recently with regards to this because it's really hard to recover from uh, a parental wound, a father yes. wound or something like that, and then look to a certain like relationship to start bringing healing there and then that wound is reopened again. again. And then it's like even uh, deeper, yeah, the, so the level of risk yeah. and vulnerability. So, um, the prayer that I've been meditating on is the second half of the serenity prayer. Most people know the first half of the serenity prayer, but the second oh, half that's the money. is, um, it is the money. Um, <laughs> accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. And this is the part here I've been meditating on. Taking as Jesus did the sinful world as, as it, it is, is not, not as, as I would it, have it. Yeah. Trusting that you will make all things right. Oh, read the next line. If I surrender to your will. No, the reasonably happy. I love that line. The, the idealist line. in me always needs to hear that. I know. So that I will be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Yes, that's it. I'll take reasonably happy right there. That's, yeah. that's, that's the, more than good enough for me. The thing I've been meditating on is accepting the world as, it, as Jesus did. Yes. Accepting the world as it is, not as I would have it. Mm -hmm. And trust there is the hardest part because the very next word is trust. Accepting trusting. hardship as a path to peace. Yeah. yeah. So I think uh, the trusting, trusting in community yeah. has been the hardest part because people um, fail us. And when they fail us, we kind of blame them for not being perfect. Yes. And then it embitters our position or even, even like ingrains us in the position that we're right. This is why I can't trust people. And this is what's wrong with the world. Which is a defense and, mechanism. Yeah, and then you kind of like cloister yourself mm -hmm. in a bad way. And then this, uh, this trust is this open, like moving towards with, with open arms, like, I'm going to accept the world as it is. Yes. Just exactly like Jesus did. 
This is the world that, that Jesus came into, the world that crucified him, is the world that it, that it is. And Jesus accepted this world. And not that, not like I would have it or he would have it, but ultimately Jesus gets what he wants and that he's bringing the world to, to, to like, yes, he's bringing the world to uh, an end like he, he wants it, he, he desires it. But it's through this accepting. I just, I find Jesus's way of accepting the world as it is. It's unreal. The fact that he sits with Judas and he's like, I know what you're about to do. Um, do it. He just accepts it. No manipulation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Willard, um, Dallas Willard, in his commentary on the end of the Sermon on the Mount, writes about Jesus' line, don't judge and you will be judged, and, and ties it to what Jesus says about oaths and let your yes be yes and your no be no. And he talks about what he calls condemnation engineering. And he wrote this 20 years ago. I mean, I, who knows what he would say now in the social media world that we're in. But he just writes about how we use condemnation, shame, fear, anger to manipulate people into doing what we think they need to do for our benefit. Yeah. And Jesus doesn't have condemnation engineering. He yeah. just speaks the truth in love and then honors human dignity. Yeah, totally. To, to a crazy degree. To a degree that killed him. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah, but I mean, also, like, we're not Jesus. We're becoming like Jesus. So I think it, we need to also say that part of it is just accepting where people are at, loving them as they are, honoring their dignity, and not using condemnation engineering to manipulate them to do either what is right or just what we want. But the other things we have to remember, because we're not Jesus yet, we're becoming like him, that it also exposes our stuff. So a lot of what we call getting hurt in community isn't really getting hurt, it's just getting annoyed. You know what I mean? Or getting agitated. Maybe that's just my psychosis, maybe. you know? No. Maybe, but I've yeah, been, you know, right. I've been in the same, we've been at our church for 16 years and I've been in the same home community for 10 years. So we've had dinner every single week and done life together. You know, this is one guy I do community with. We see each other at least four days a week for a decade now, you know, which for millennial, that's like 50 years, you know? Um, <laughs> it's like dog years. It's yeah. like dog years. Millennial years, yeah. And, and I, I, I'm just shocked at how often I get annoyed and agitated over little things, you know what I mean? Because everybody's like decently mature, so it's not like some major thing, but it exposes this part of me that is judgmental, that is easily angered, that is impatient, that wants m things done my way. Yeah. You know, and a lot of it's just preferences. We're not even talking about like moral things. Well, for me, everything is moral at some level, but that's my problem. Um, just some of it's just preferences. And that's such a gift because it exposes how far I have to go toward Jesus' vision of agape. Yeah, so the question that I get the most when I start talking about agape love in community, uh, a self-giving love, um, uh, an accepting life as it is, when I talk about these things, the thing that, the question I get the most of, and I don't think I have a good answer for it, so I'm asking you to answer it here. Oh, great, live on stage, um, thank you yeah. for that. So um, I actually don't, because I don't, they ask, where do you set up boundaries? How do you like not let people just walk over you? How do you, all, all over you? How do you like not let people take advantage of you? How do you set up boundaries? This is off script, bro. <laughs> this is why I preach sermons from notes and don't just stand up and talk to friends in front of a thousand people. Yeah, I don't know. That's, I mean, that's a, I don't know. Great. So, um, <laughs> talk about and this actually might... I mean, I, I think some of that... I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going if to... I, if I just start talking, yeah, that's probably not a good idea. Um, actually, it'd be great. I mean, I think the thing you have to remember is you will get hurt, annoyed, agitated, frustrated in community. It's supposed to do that to you. 
So if you are looking for a version of community where everything is utopian and great, I'm just back to what I already said, like the ideal of, he who loves the ideal of community becomes the destroyer of community, Bonhoeffer, who said that after living in a basically yeah. a co-housing community with 150 people. So um, you just ha you have to recognize, do all the boundary stuff, and I've been through some really intense stuff with community, so mm -hmm. I, I have respect for that. But you have to recognize people will cross your boundaries as they did for Jesus. Yeah. People will take up your time. People, you will take up their time. That's yeah. part of what happens. And so I think maybe we need to recast the vision from this utopian, everything's great, we all have boundaries, we all have our stuff together, and it's wonderful to like a more realistic picture of, yeah, we're moving toward that, but man, there's multi-decades for most of us we have to go through of, you know, messiness. Yeah. And that's part, if you don't submit to that, you will not become a person of love. Yeah. At least not to the degree that you ache for and Jesus aches for too. One of the things that I wanted to, one of the main reasons why I had you, invited you to come speak on uh, this, this Sunday was, um, the importance of, because everything we're talking about here, the importance of slowing down yeah. in community, the importance of, because this, this isn't something that can be hacked. This isn't something that can be like sped up. Mm -hmm. This is like- Very time consuming. A very time, so talk about- it's Laborious, slowing it's not down. efficient. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, we live in this like hyper efficiency, like we worship at the altar of efficiency. I mean, how many books have we read, podcasts have we listened to, coaches have we hired or whatever that are all like, how do you hone your body, hone your workout routine? I mean, this is San Francisco. This, You're like, that. you yep. won't even eat food anymore. Some of you, you are like, here's a capsule or whatever. Yeah, like, totally. That's a waste of time to like eat a burrito bowl. That's like 20 minutes gone from my day. I like, could be changing the world or whatever. Blender and exactly, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so have it delivered by a drone to your like whatever. So we're upset and that's not all bad. Like I'm all for don't waste your life. It's, it's not to slight that. It's just to say the human obsession with efficiency might be really helpful in like not letting your phone rule you and being really good at your job. But it will cripple you when it comes to relationship. People are not efficient. People are not time, you know, helpful. People take a lot of time. You take a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> I take a lot of time. Dave takes a lot of time. Like, yeah. and, and time, like there was this saying back in the 90s and it was so dumb and cheesy, like back in the acronym, Hey Dave acronyms. But it, it just was that love is spelled time. Love is spelled T-I-M-E. You know, it's so cheesy and da 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 da. But like I remember hearing that like as a young parent and thinking, no, it's, it's quality of time, not quantity of time. I'll just like, I'll just give 20 minutes a day but it'll be like the best 20 minutes this kid has ever had or whatever, <laughs> you know? And like all older parents just look at you and laugh or mock you or correct or whatever, chuckle. You know, and it just doesn't work that way because the quality comes in the quantity. So all parents know this. You might spend 12 hours with your kids and it's really about one five minute chunk. But kids don't operate. Kids are so helpful. Not most of you don't have kids, but kids are so helpful because they refuse to play by our adult rules. So like, you know what I mean? Like if somebody wants time with me at our church or whatever, they email my assistant and they schedule out multi-weeks in advance and we set this time, we set this place. My 10-year-old boy, Moses, doesn't like email my assistant. Can I please get some time with John Mark? I know there's a book coming out right now and he's really busy, but I really, you know, he just barges into my office no matter how many times I tell him, don't interrupt me and just starts talking, just starts talking. Like it's just going and sometimes it's really important soul stuff. Most of the time it's not, it's about like anime or whatever he's drawing right now, you know? 
And that's what relationship is. And you just never know when those key moments are going to come. So obviously it's easy to say, well, it's a parenting thing. No, that's a life human thing. You never know when those moments are going to come. And so, I mean, a big part of, you know, writing this book for me and my own journey with hurry as a, you know, type A, prone to workaholism, efficiency obsessed kind of person, or at least formerly that and in recovery or something, is, is just realizing that in my opinion, hurry is incompatible with love. All of my worst moments in relationship, as a father in particular, as a husband, as a pastor, as a friend, all of my worst moments are when I'm in a hurry. When I don't have enough time, when I have too much to do, when I'm feeling and carrying that stress in my body, so I'm easily irritated, easily offended, easily annoyed, or I just don't have time to talk. All of my worst moments, you know? I mean, if you think about like, I, I just, just next time you're in one of those moments, if you have kids, this is again easier, like just next time you're trying to get anywhere with your children on time, or if you're trying to get to a, a, a flight and you're late, or you're trying to get your roommates to church, or whatever your thing is, next time you're, try, you're late for something, you're stressed, you're hurried, and you're trying to do something with people, just pay attention to your body, and just with no judgment, notice, is this love coming out of my body? And um, the odds are it's not love. It's, it's a biting comment. It's hurry up. It's I always tell you. It's just I don't have time. We'll talk about it later. Get in the car right now. Go. We're late. You know, it's like. Have you ever been talking to Ashley? Uh, <laughs> That's literally my. Thing. That's your experience. Yeah. Wait till yeah. Junie gets old enough to want to walk on her own. Right now, you can just grab her and pick her up. My 14-year-old yeah. is out here. I can't do that anymore. It's yeah. just, you saw it this morning. He's yeah. like sitting down for an egg sandwich, right? As we're leaving, I'm like, what are you doing? You can't. I have to go talk about hurry and love. Get in the car. You did. You know? I actually uh, filmed it. So, no, I'm joking. Oh, so thank you, Ashley, for the egg sandwich. That was, we didn't have time to eat. But, um, but my point is just like all of my worst moments are when I'm in a rush, when I'm in a hurry, when I'm late. And you could argue the same for joy and peace, which are the other two realities that are at the center of Jesus' kingdom vision. I mean, if you read the Gospel of John and the writings of Paul, in my mind, those three quality, character qualities come to the surface, love, joy, and peace. And they're not just emotions. That's a very much a misreading of them. They are the inner disposition of the heart. They're the kinds of people that we become as we follow Jesus over decades and a lifetime. We become people who are loving, who are grateful, joyful, at ease, and people who are non-anxious presence in the insanity of the world and marked by a deep sense of shalom, peace, and well-being, even when everything is going belly up. Yeah. And that, that takes 50 years, not a few months. You can't like do an e-course at reality and like, boom, I'm love, joy, peace now, got it. And in my opinion, all three of those things that mark the center, the epicenter of life in the kingdom under the rule and reign of Jesus, um, they're all incompatible with hurry. Hurried people are not loving, they're not happy and grateful, and they're definitely not peaceful. Speaking of like, we're not able to like take a master class in this or an e-course <laughs> on this and like nailed it, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Um, Roheiser, Ron Roheiser, who's yeah. one of our favorite writers, yes. um, he writes about the, the domestic monastery. And so he has this thing on... Uh, for monks and those who uh, give themselves to uh, the cloistered life, uh, there's this thing called church bells that, um, that ring went randomly and it cues the monk to whatever they're doing. They could be writing in the middle of writing or reading and they have to stop what they're doing and pray. Yeah. So this idea of, of bells doing that. And so Roheiser says that what this does, it, it teaches the monk 
to understand that time doesn't belong to them. Time belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God. And so he says, in the domestic monastery, the bells are your kids. The bells are your, your dog. Your bells are your community. Wow. And whenever something happens, you could be in the middle of cooking or in the middle of a phone call and your baby's whatever, Junie's like crawling into something she shouldn't be. Those are bells, right? Wow. And then you're like, I, I can't. I, and you have to stop. And Time you move doesn't over, belong to you. And you grab Junie and you're like, and it's a reminder, time doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. And so it teaches, and you know, Rohaiser's whole thing about like how the, the stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad are actually cloistered monks in a yeah. sense. And it, yeah. they, all the same thing. This whole thing, if you, if you do it right, it will do the same the thing same to exact you thing. as a full-time parent or whatever that yep. it would do to a full-time mom. And I've been, it will turn you into a person of love. I've been thinking about this because, um, first of all, Prince, our petite golden doodle, has literal bells. You're on insanely the, hyperactive, yes. crazy So he has bells doodle. on the door to, to like, I want to go outside yeah. and, um, and go to the bathroom, whatever. But he just rings them all the time to like, I just want to <laughs> lay in the sun on the deck. So he's, and I'm praying. And as soon as I sit down to pray, these bells ding, go ding, off. Ding. And it's Prince just jumping His out dog the door. literally is the only dog I've ever seen that can jump straight up and down, like a cartoon. Yeah. It's like, not like a forward jump, no, but like no. just yeah. ding, ding, yeah, it he's bounces. Amazing. It's not even yeah, a jump, it's a bounce. He's Tigger, yeah, yeah. he's Tigger. Exactly. And, and so, it, but I, so I get angry. I mean, my first instinct is to get angry at Prince. I'm like, gosh, why do we have like a dog and I love him, but not right now, and that sort of thing. And then I remember like bells, like this yeah. time doesn't belong to me. And so I like, I, I walk up to Prince way differently or I walk up to Junie when, when Junie needs me way differently than if I was being interrupted. Yes. If I'm being interrupted, I'm like, Prince, I'm about to pray. Don't you understand this? Or Junie, I'm, I'm about to, I'm getting on a phone call, on a Zoom call right now. I can't do this. It changes it to going, time doesn't belong to me. And I show up way more caring and loving. And those interruptions, we have to recognize are what life is about. Yeah. You know what I mean? C.S. Lewis once said something to the effect of how you respond to an interruption is who you really are. Yeah. Again, like the exposure thing, <laughs> you know? Wow. Oh, by the way, this that, front row. You, I love that. Whoever was a below the front row's I'm mind. I'm so happy that you're here. Just quote someone, they're like, on. whoa. Wow. <laughs> As Dave Lomas once said, uh, like, uh, yeah. no, they'll but, go, what? But no. there's something to that. I mean, if you just read through the four gospels of Jesus and just like have a little spreadsheet if you want to go crazy or a little a notepad next to you and just note how many of the stories are interruptions. Yeah. I mean, overwhelming volume of the stories about Jesus teaching life moment are interruptions and half of Jesus teachings are not like Sermon on the Mount style, come thousands of people lecture. They have that or at the synagogue, half of the teachings are Jesus responses to interruptions, criticism, anger, annoyance, pain, a person on the side of the road and Jesus just wicked, smart, sage, brilliant Jesus will just offer this perspective, response of wisdom, truth, healing, love, freedom, whatever it is. And I think that's the end goal, is to become those kind of people. Again, Willard was once asked, if you could describe Jesus in one word, what would it be? And he thought for a minute and he said, relaxed. Mm -hmm. Can I get a woe? No woe for that one? Whoa. I mean, like, it's so, how do you think of Jesus? Do you th I mean, majestic or sermonic or smart or loving, but relaxed. Yeah. And I just, I just, when I read the pages of the four gospels, to me, Jesus does not come off as in a hurry. He kind of, like one of the things I love most about, I was even thinking this yesterday, reading through the gospel of Luke and Jesus just had this brilliant response 
to an odd comment at a dinner party that became this like really elaborate, beautiful teaching. And I thought, man, that was an off the cuff moment. And Jesus is just so present to the moment, present to the person in front of him. I mean, his uncanny ability to read the pain of the person in front of him or to call out the potential and destiny in somebody, present to God, like I always see what the Father is doing and like I act in harmony and in alignment with that. Like you're just so aware of this is the moment, this is the person, the pain, the potential, this is what God is doing, present to his own soul, like so in touch with his own emotions and relationships and body. And man, that, that way of living in presence Man, you just, you can't do that at 10 times speed, you know? Yeah. Um, talk about, real quick, how do you practically, how do you start to practically live out slowing down in community? What would that look like? Just disciplines or practices that you can do? Because it is a practice, slowing yeah. down in community. But it is so, it's kind of large. It's kind of, yes. um, it can be abstract. It can become aspirational, yeah. which is not remotely helpful. Yeah. What, what would be some ways that you've um, gotten this concept into your body? Well, you know, if you think about, you were mentioning the monastic thing. So, like, if you look at the monastic story and, and tradition and Benedict, you know, came up with the rule of St. Benedict, which was really, the, it wasn't the first rule of life. Um, that goes back to at least the second century, Benedict's in the fifth. But it was the first, like, popularized one that was more accessible to not super crazy desert father and mother people out in the wilderness. And, you know, they organized the monastery around seven hours of prayer. And I think what they were attempting to do, if I'm reading it right, is almost like what training wheels are to learn how to ride a bike. The idea was that you would pause seven times during the day, which might sound extreme to some of us, to turn your attention to God and his love coming toward you and let God love you. Turn your inner gaze of your heart toward God's love and joy and peace. And you would stop what you're doing and give your full attention to that seven times a day. But the end goal wasn't to pray seven times a day. The end goal was to pray without ceasing. It was to abide in the vine, as Jesus said. It was to become the kind of person who is always, you know, in Brother Lawrence's language, practicing the presence of God. It was kind of always two places at once. You know, I mean, you're present in the moment, you're there, but you're always just aware that God is with you in each moment. And so I think conversations around rule of life, which is new language to a lot of people, but around practices that you can literally schedule in, and this will depend on your stage of life and personality and how much you like that or dislike that, but that, that create moments of pause to slow down and stop and like, restart again. You yeah. know what I mean? Which is the same if you're learning a, mu a musical thing or you're learning a new athletic discipline. Like you build these little, like I remember when I was first learning barefoot running. And um, Wait, what? This, it's a thing. It's a whole, don't, I don't want to talk about it. It's actually quite controversial. So there's probably doctors in the room. I can't talk about it. But um, so this was years ago and I was getting into barefoot running and there was this guy in our church that was a former, he was headed to the Olympics it was do, for, as a triathlete and he uh, like broke his knee or something like a month before the Olympics. It was a real tragedy, but he knew all the stuff. It was incredible. incredible. She was like, oh, I'll, I'll train you, which was quite embarrassing. And so I remember him teaching me how to do barefoot running and it's this whole, like it's, it's a whole thing and it's this whole like 
anti-Nike conspiracy thing that it's all after your money and it's designed to wreck your body. And I don't know, I'm not a doctor. But he, has, he had this whole spiel. And if you notice, like most marathon runners, like professional Olympic athletes, they're not wearing like the shoes that we run, that we buy from whatever sportswear company. They're wearing like super minimalist shoes, basically barefoot shoes. And so in order to run that way, you have to retrain your body to run basically the way a little kid does on the balls of your feet. And so you do these like little exercises where, you know what I mean, they're cheesy, but they're like, you know, you touch your butt and you start by doing this. I'm not going to do any more because it's really embarrassing. And it works, it works better in spandex. But, um, <laughs> but you begin your run doing that. And what he would tell me is, and what happens is if you don't run correctly and you're running barefoot, you injure yourself. And so what he would say is every, as you're getting into your run and you start to get tired, and you notice, oh, my form is slouching. I'm starting to fall on the back of my feet again. I'm going to injure myself. You stop. You wait a minute, and you do the exercise again, which is really, you look like an idiot on the side of the road doing this. And then you start going again. Mm. And I think that's, we need those moments of pause, of stop, of retraining, whether that be Sabbath or morning prayer or fixed hour prayer or an evening with your community, these moments where we're just like, I'm just getting sucked into the busyness, the hurry, I'm on my phone. Okay, I need to stop. And I need to come back to center. I need to remember. I have like a little mantra I literally repeat to myself. And, you know, and I have very strict disciplines around my phone and my daily schedule, which all get obliterated by life and kids and relationships and to tasks and stuff. So you have to have, be really gentle and patient with yourself and your journey. But I think we have to build in practices from the way of Jesus and habits that rehabituate us to stop, to slow down. And sometimes you might have to do that 20 times in a day. And it doesn't have to take a half hour. It can be a minute. Five minutes, you know? I don't know. That's what I would say. What that's do you say? really good. Yeah. I mean, you do this stuff. You're like, I think you live really unhurried. When I'm with you, you live really present to me. It's because you wrote a book on it, so I felt like I have to. Uh, <laughs> perform for me because you don't feel safe. All right. That's um, great. So there we go. Yeah, Exposure. I, I think, um, yeah, living unhurried, I think it's a... Uh, I think it has to become a value that you, that you, that you actually set up as a goal. Like, yes. I want to be less And for uh, most people, it's hurried. not. Yeah, exactly. Because there's people, a high cost that comes yeah. with it. Yeah. yeah. Or I want to be less distracted. I want to be more present. And, uh, and then, so I'd say it has to start as like a value, like think I'm going to do this. And then you, exp like you let the people that are really close to you know this is a value for me. So wife, community, whatever, let them know is if I'm acting in ways that seem hurry or rushed, there's got to be some sort of like centered word or safe word that you can like bring us back, bring me back to like what, what I'm doing. Um, I think those kind of things, accountability like that is helpful. By accountability, I know that's like a buzzword or whatever, but yeah, I mean, I just someone to like, to like Call sound an alarm. Yeah. Like, oh, you're doing that thing that you said. Um, this is something I do with Ash a lot. Like I want to be present at home and I don't want to be on my phone. I don't want to be this or that or whatever or distracted because sometimes Sometimes uh, with my personality, I, I like daydream a lot. Like, like, my, like I'll just fall into a daydream. And, uh, and they're about all kinds of stuff. Basically escaping what I'm doing right now. I'm just like, <laughs> oh, that fun thing in the future that I get to do. I'm already there in my mind. Yeah. And Ash will always be like, where, where are you? Like she'll say, where are you? And I'm like, I'm, oh, I'm not here. 
I'm way, I'm way over there. I'm on a golf course in I'm on Scotland. A golf course. It's, it's amazing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm in Hawaii. Or I'm literally, I will, and I've done this as a, as a kid, to escape kind of where I'm at. I'll go, I'll daydream about somewhere else. Yeah. And ask, where are you right now? I'm like, again, oh. the human inability to face reality. Yes. Because reality is painful. My, yeah. yeah. And so as a um, personality type, if you do Enneagram, Enneagram 7. So which the is way like you do that pain, is through daydreaming. Daydreaming. And I'm like, daydream. So Ash will always like resent, like, where are you right now? Um, and so I've said as a value, I don't want to do that. I want to be present. I want to be here. I want to be slow. I want to be whatever. And, uh, and so I, I make that as a value. And then I get people around me to go, tell me when I'm not doing this. So with the staff, I say when I'm getting really unhealthy, I think I shared this last Sunday, I get really aloof. Like I get really aloof. Like, I, like, like whatever, whatever, you know, like I get that way. So I tell the staff, if I get that way, it's because I'm probably unhealthy and just bring it up to me. Like you're being aloof and you should probably work backwards from there to figure out why. Yeah. And so I, I try to do that as much as I can. That takes vulnerability, which is a really, really important thing in community, just being vulnerable. Like this is what I am struggling with. This is what I want to bring people into. And not just like being vulnerable with a select group of like three people who are like your inner, inner, inner circle, but to, I think to be vulnerable with a larger group of people mm-hmm. to bring them in because sometimes we men don't want to be vulnerable men. at work but we are vulnerable at, at home with our roommates or whatever and then you have to compartmentalize that. Or, and maybe just in two or three areas that yeah, we exactly. choose. Yeah, exactly. So that's the awesome thing about community is that you stop getting to pick what you're vulnerable about because yes. who you actually are starts coming out. Yeah. And I think we compartmentalize our lives so much that I'm a different person at work than I am at home than mm-hmm. I am in my community. And so the more that we're vulnerable in all of these areas, the more that we can be ourselves and there's integration yes. with all these areas. So I think a value, vulnerability, letting people know, and then of course, the disciplines but, that yeah. bring us back. But I mean, accountability is one of those disciplines. Yeah. It's saying, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I, there's that acronym in the spiritual formation world that ties in really well with secular theories of learning, um, those of you in education. And the acronym is VIM or vision, intention, means. For mm-hmm. any kind of change in your life, yeah. be it to become a person of agape or to lose five pounds or to get up a half an hour earlier, whatever you want to do. First, you have, first thing you need is a vision in your mind's eye of a different way to yeah. be human, which totally. is why so much of, what's what most of preaching is, is what most of Jesus' teachings are just this vision of like, here's a whole other way to live in the kingdom of God, to live life as God intended under his rule and human flourishing. Then you have to have a moment of intention. You know, you have to decide in your heart, I will do whatever it takes to become that. Because all of us hear amazing, compelling visions of a different way to be human all day long. Every time we turn on the radio or see an ad and we're like, Nah. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was watching an ad the other day on, online. It was like some, you know, making you wait for a YouTube thing or something. And it was like, I think it was a Nike ad. And it was just ridiculously handsome, 20-something, like zero body fat cut, doing all these like running exercises and track workouts. And, and I was like, oh man, that looks amazing. I mean, I, if I were to look like that, feel like that, be able to jump over a hurdle thing, that would be, and then I was like, Nah, it's more of my muffin, you know? Like, because I know you the get cost. different ads than I get. I never get the ripped, like, guy from Nike. I get, like, really weird, weird uh, they know. That they target me for. I'm like, that, that's who I am? Uh, that's like, really? That, that's uh, it? Oh, so you have to have, you have, to have a moment of intention. Because we all hear compelling visions, and we're like, nah, it's too much work. I, I don't know. I'm too busy. I don't have time for it. You have to have a moment of intention. And then the last, this is where most people drop off, it's where most churches drop off, is you have to have means. You have to have concrete very practical, yep. down to earth, where you're at, not where you should be, yeah. steps to move forward. Yeah. And you see this in Jesus' teaching, like in the Sermon on the Mount, which 
you know, scholars argue is actually a, a, a compendium or collection of 14 teachings, and they all, I think they all go together. I think they're kind of all part of one flow of thought. But in each one of those 14 teachings, depending on which scholar you read, or at least most of them, they follow this kind of tripart thing, a vision, intention, and they each end with means. So Jesus' first teaching on anger and, and teaching about how it's really rooted in contempt and how it's the basis of almost all human interpersonal problems and issues and our incapacity for love is rooted in the, the kind of anger that is contempt where you think you're better than somebody else mm -hmm. and you look down your nose and you judge them. That's basically the base sin underneath most relational problems. And in that that teaching, he ends with like super practical. So, and it's actually really funny. It's lost in translation, but it's comedic. Like if you're there at the altar in Jerusalem and he's up in Galilee, you, you know, walked for three days to get there with your goat and you're about to offer your goat or whatever. And there you remember that your neighbor Bob is mad at you because you like knocked over his fence and didn't want to pay for it or whatever. Leave your goat there at the altar, run back three day journey, make everything right with Bob and come back and say, thank you, Mr. Priest, take yeah. your goat back and keep going, you know? And it's funny, but it's a very practical thing. Basically, it literally saying, don't go to the temple and make your sacrifice until you resolve this relational problem. And he has another one. If you're on the way to court, da, 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 it's a different legal system. And so these very small, ordinary steps that meet us in the messiness of our life, whatever that is, are, are essential. And I think accountability is one of those steps yeah. where you share with your community, this is the vision of the kind of person I want to become. And I have an intention in my heart. Here's some practices I want to move toward this with. Will you be my community and will you call me? to that. Hmm. So then as we end, I'm going to ask you to do two things. Um, one, just in a very short way, would you just summarize the vision? Like what is the vision of, a, of living unhurried? And hmm. then lead us in a meditation. Yeah. I think the vision is that we slow our mind and our body and our inner woman or man, our spirit, down to the restful, joyful, compassionate, grateful pace of Jesus. We move through the world at his side. We walk with God. As Koisuke Koyama said, love has its own speed. It is the inner speed of love. Called God a three mile per hour God. We walk with God at the speed of love, present to God, to the people around us, to our own soul and to the moment, eyes open for what God has for us. And as we slip out of that and we get hurried or agitated or annoyed or our pain comes up or our in in inability to trust comes up or our fear comes up, we don't bolt, distract, daydream, close off. We slowly meet that emotion, feeling, temptation, distraction, and we graciously just begin again. And over time, through practices, through community, through facing reality, through sin, through just meditation on the love of God, we slowly but surely are transformed from the inner person where the natural byproduct of our life and relationships is we're loving, as defined by agape, creative, generous, compassionate, self-giving, other-centered love. We're set free from the egoic operating system. Set free from where everything is about us and what makes us what we want, what we need, what makes us happy. We're free from ourselves to live in love and become ourselves. We're full of joy, 
deeply grateful. Everything is gift, nothing is right. And we have underneath the chaos of life in the world and the city, we just have this tranquility, this peace, this calm, and like a bedrock in the middle of a river, we're just able to offer a non-anxious presence to our world as we anchor in Jesus. I think that's the vision. Amen. Would you stand as we pray? I just want to um, end with a, a very short exercise. I just invite you to maybe take a few deep breaths. And again, to just really do your best to be present to the moment. You can close your eyes, you can open your eyes, whatever is more helpful for you to focus. And I just want to lead you through a very short imaginative prayer. The way God built the human brain um, is with imagination as a key thing. So if I ask you what's in the back of your car, you don't think of a word processor writing out backpack or umbrella or whatever. You, you, you see it in your mind's eye. Imagination is core to our experience of reality. And so just right now, in the moment, Holy Spirit, come. I just want to invite you to imagine God. And this doesn't have to be a strict theological category, not because that doesn't matter, it does. But however you want to imagine the Trinitarian community of love, um, you might want to imagine a face or you might want to imagine what Jesus would look like to you. Or you might, I love to imagine like early morning light breaking over the clouds. As the scriptures write that God is spirit, God is light, and God is love. The spirit of loving light. Whatever, whatever you want, just take a moment and draw to mind God. And now just take a moment, let's just go through that triumvirate of love and joy and peace. Take a, ma a moment to imagine, and more than imagine, to sense, to feel, to experience, to receive as gift the love of the Trinitarian community coming toward you. And you as you are, I invite you to hold your sin up before God in your mind's eye. Whatever it is that you're cut to the heart by, you know you've done wrong, be it an acute mistake you made or an ongoing character deficiency. Hold that up to God with no excuses, no shame, no masochism. Just hold that up to God and let the Trinitarian community love you as you are. And now just take a moment to imagine the joy, the grateful, creative, spontaneous, generous, let there be light, the universe spilling out of God's inner being, the essence of who he is, that playful, joyful, intelligent, witty, 
Just let that aspect of God just receive the joy of the Trinitarian community coming toward you. The smile on God's face. And now would you just receive the peace of God coming toward you. Think of the deep forest or a quiet lake or an early morning hour, those moments are just the feeling of rock on your hand or your foot. Stability, calm, tranquility. Let's receive the peace of God. Peace to you, Jesus said. Well-being, shalom, pervasive happiness to you. And now just turning your gaze outward, would you imagine or see in your mind's eye the love of the Trinitarian community for your city as a whole, maybe bird's eye view of seven by seven, and then specifically for people you know, friend and enemy, boss, roommate, partner, parent, neighbor, barista, Manager, just would you envision the love of the Trinitarian community coming toward them? The compassion, the empathy, the self-giving. And now would you imagine the joy of God coming toward others? and all of our unrest and anger and inequality and questions, do you imagine just the joy of God the loving light over the city and over people you know? And now would you just imagine the peace of God? over your city, over your office, or your workplace, over your home, over your neighborhood, your apartment. The deep tranquility and calm of the ground of all being. And finally, would you draw to mind the person that you are becoming through your apprenticeship to Jesus? And would you imagine yourself in the day or week ahead as a person of Christ-like love, compassion, solidarity, a person of Christ-like joy, gratefulness, ease, relaxation, restfulness, flexibility to interruption, and a person of peace, a non-anxious presence in an election year. (laughs) Would you just imagine the Spirit of God doing what only He can do and you and I can't, not through willpower, not through sermons, all great stuff, but forming you into a Christ-like soul of unhurried love, joy, and peace.
Come Holy Spirit. This teaching was recorded live at Reality San Francisco. And as a part of our weekly gatherings, we move from teaching to responding to the Holy Spirit through prayer and a time of ministry. It's hard to capture that on a podcast, but we encourage you to pause and consider how the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to respond to what you've just heard. For more resources and details of how to join us on Sundays, please visit realitysf.com. May the peace of Christ be with you.